the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello and welcome to the Slaughter and May podcast. My name is Tim Blanchard and I'm a partner in our disputes and investigations team. I'm David Green. I'm a consultant with Slaughter and May and was director of the Serious Fraud Office. And I'm Ella Williams, an associate in the disputes and investigations team working with David and Tim. And I'm Filippo De Falco, a corporate partner at Slaughter and May. So over the next 15 minutes or so, we will be sharing our views on how to identify and assess possible bribery and corruption risks in distressed M&A scenarios against the backdrop of COVID-19. To set the scene, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to businesses across many industries and sectors facing challenging times as economic conditions have worsened, both in the UK and overseas. Now, although countries across the globe, including the UK, have already started to ease the measures and restrictions imposed to help manage COVID-19 related risks, it is likely that we will see some companies emerge with uncertain futures, whilst others emerge with cash that they plan to use to target more struggling entities. And this in turn may lead to increased distressed M&A activity in the market. As with any M&A activity, it is important to consider potential bribery and corruption risks, as well as other criminal offence risks when assessing a target's business and progressing the transaction. And in the UK, these risks are heightened, in particular, by the broad jurisdictional reach of the UK Bribery Act, and particularly the possibility of corporate criminal liability under Section 7 of that Act. But depending on the jurisdictions in which the businesses are based or operate, parties to a transaction may also need to think about other equivalent or similar risks that may arise overseas. And I'm thinking here about acts such as the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Now, during today's podcast, we are going to touch on the key risk areas or often called red flags that may arise from a UK Bribery Act perspective and how a potential acquirer can seek to mitigate them during the acquisition process. So to kick things off, Ella, David, perhaps you could take us through why it is important to have these risks on your radar during an M&A transaction. I think the first thing to talk about is, is the concept of successor liability. So this concept is uh, refers to the possibility that an acquiring company might incur liability for a target company's past misdeeds and potentially face enforcement action once the deal completes. It's a very well-developed concept in other jurisdictions, um, such as in the United States. Here in the UK, generally, parent companies are not criminally liable for the past acts of acquired companies, but there are still ways in which a purchaser can be liable for an entity that is purchased, so they will inherit any ongoing bad practices. And there are money laundering implications under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 if the target holds tainted cash or the profits of investments from improperly obtained contracts or assets. And there have been some high profile examples of this in recent years, including when David was a director of the Serious Fraud Office. Yeah, focusing on the uh, enforcement perspective, uh, by way of example, um, in uh, the ICBC Standard Bank PLC agreed a uh, deferred prosecution agreement with the SFO in November of 2015. And in doing so, it was accepting responsibility 
for the failure to prevent bribery, contrary to Section 7 of the Bribery Act, but the conduct which formed that offence occurred prior to the acquisition of Standard Bank PLC by ICBC. Uh, so why did they decide to accept that responsibility? Um, my best guess is that they wanted finality, in other words, commercial certainty, and also they wanted to uh, better their image and maintain it uh, as a, a lender uh, amongst various African countries. Finally, in the absence of a DPA, um, a company which is found guilty of a Section 7 Bribery Act offence is liable, of course, to pay an unlimited fine and possibly compensation orders. And most dangerous to a company of all, it may find itself debarred from competing for public procurement contracts in Europe and also in the US. So, David, if, if I ask you to gaze into your SFO um, crystal ball, how much appetite do you think the SFO will have to investigate potentially criminal conduct that took place during the COVID-19 pandemic in the future? And do you, in the meantime, see any change in approach likely to happen as to how the SFO is dealing with current active cases? Well, uh, dealing with current active cases, that dealing continues, as we can see in last week's charging of uh, GPT, a subsidiary of Airbus, after an eight-year investigation. Um, so it's business as usual. My gut feeling is that there will be no specific action focused around uh, whatever happened during uh, the COVID crisis, uh, because I think the overbearing priority uh, of the government, indeed of most uh, most uh, organisations involved, will be to get the economy moving again. Um, so I would see DPAs continuing. I think Rio Tinto is a, a possibility for a future DPA. Um, and I've got a feeling as well, my gut feeling is that most uh, misbehaviour, economic or financial misbehaviour uh, directly linked to COVID will not really be of the type of offending in, in which the SFO is traditionally interested. Having said all that, David, I mean, while we anticipate that the immediate focus and even the medium term focus will be to get the economy back on track. It's worth noting that there's no statute of limitations in the UK. So if there is anything that's going on during this pandemic that the SFO might be interested in, then that could become a focus in the future. Yes, certainly I agree with that. That's an interesting point, Ella. And I think, you know, if if we are saying that risk might not arise now, it might not arise in the short term, but it might still be out there in the medium to long term. Filippo, from a practical perspective, what should purchasers be thinking about to help mitigate that risk arising? Well, look, the you know the straightforward answer is they really need to put assessment of that risk high up on their agenda early on in an acquisition process and make sure that they do thorough due diligence before they actually commit to buy a target company so that they know where they stand. And at a high level, the two key questions they'll ask themselves at the start is, does a target operate in a jurisdiction or in an industry that presents a heightened risk of bribery incidents? And once it has assessed that, there is a typical laundry list of questions that it will, will ask of any seller and target from inquiring around the use of agents, around facilitation payments, around 
whether the business has ongoing and regular interactions with government officials, as well as inquiring around any historic allegations of bribery and investigations and looking at what policies the target has in place. So just pausing for a moment then to reflect further on what exactly may be on that laundry list of red flags. Now, Filippo, as you've said, if the target's business involves the use of engagement of agents to operate on the company's behalf or assist them with their business operations, then those relationships, of course, should be a focus of the due diligence exercise. And that, in practice, can be somewhat challenging, particularly if you are faced with circumstances where the target itself may not even have full transparency over its agent's day-to-day activities. Also, you should be looking at whether the target operates in jurisdictions where so-called facilitation payments are customary or where those types of payments are regularly being made by employees or agents. Other points to consider include the target's gifts and hospitality policies and procedures and how those have been applied in practice. And also, you'll want to be thinking about whether the target business has made any significant sponsorships of local entities or charitable donations, and whether it has any existing policies and procedures in place that govern those practices. Finally, in the current environment, you'll also want to be thinking about what actions the target may have taken in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And here I'm thinking about things such as new contracts that have been entered into, or perhaps new third party relationships that have been established. And from a a potential enforcement risk perspective, uh, a company in this situation will also want to look very carefully, obviously, and see whether there are any ongoing or threatened or linked investigations or information requests from law enforcement agencies. Um, Secondly, uh, they will want to check carefully that uh, uh, anti-bribery and corruption policies and procedures um, are efficacious and in that company and uh, readily understandable and backed up by training and so forth. And also, lastly, obviously, it will be important to look at whether there are any open, ongoing whistleblower complaints still under investigation. And Filippo, so let's say we get through the due diligence process and no red flags or risk areas have been identified. Of course, that's not necessarily to say that they aren't out there and they just haven't been picked up during the process. What what can be done to mitigate that risk? Yes, look, I think I think solutions probably fall within three buckets. The first is a comprehensive set of warranties so that you really focus a seller's mind on these issues and elicit disclosures of anything that might not have come up and been uncovered in your due diligence. The second is potentially looking at financial remedies, whether indemnities or price adjustments. And those will help you if you have identified something that may result, for example, into uh, a regulatory fine on the target and will address your ability to recover that. And the third is a broad bucket, if you like, of structural remedies. And those could range from increased access during the period between signing and closing so that you can do a more in-depth investigation um, and looking at policies and how you might start enhancing them with effect from closing to a much more radical solution of potentially leaving a part or a subsidiary of the target business behind if you have been able to identify that any heightened 
bribery risk really sits in that particular area of business. And to add to all that, um, you may need to consider your reporting requirements if you do spot a problem in the pre-acquisition stage. So the ones that I'm thinking about is that there may be reporting requirements under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 to report suspicions of money laundering to the National Crime Agency. For example, the buyer might need to report if it has a suspicion that it's about to receive criminal property, because otherwise receipt of that property could be a further money laundering offence. Um, And also the buyer's professional advisors might need to report, um, although there is an exception for information that has been received in privileged circumstances. So the buyer's lawyers are unlikely to have an obligation to report. But for other professional advisors, this is a statutory duty that overrides any confidentiality or non-disclosure agreements with the target. Um, And in doing that report, it's also important not to tip off the target um, and by that I mean to to disclose either inadvertently or or expressly to the target that suspicious that a suspicious activity report has been made, because doing that is a further offence under POCA. And then obviously listed companies have market disclosure obligations, um, and Filippo, you will know all about that. Yes, that's right. Of course, once a deal closes, the listed company will have to update the market in relation to material events affecting the target in in the normal way. So a listed buyer will start thinking about those possible announcements beforehand and whether relevant circumstances that it has uncovered, um, for example, evidence of historic corruption or any perceived risk of regulatory actions or fines coming down the road, um, require disclosure because they passed the inside information test. Um, or indeed whether there are any safe harbours that allow them to, to delay disclosure, for example, while negotiations with the regulator continue. And if that disclosure is required, then a buyer will really be focused on that and look at it very carefully because it will be very unpalatable to make a disclosure of this type whilst also announcing what, no doubt, the buyer will want to present to the market as a very positive deal. In a worst-case scenario, doing that analysis before acquisition um, and, and alighting on the fact that a, such a disclosure would need to be made on the on the acquisition occurring could lead to a situation where the acquisition doesn't proceed at all, potentially. Absolutely. And I think that takes us nicely on to our, our final topic, which is is around post-completion. So let's, let's assume that things go well, no issues identified during the due diligence stage and, and the purchaser decides to proceed with the transaction and it completes. Uh, that's unfortunately not the end of the story, is it, Ella? Because there are other issues and considerations that the company needs to look at. And I'm thinking here in particular around compliance programmes. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I think the first thing that I'd mention is that um, Filippo said earlier that you might be able to negotiate a period of time to do a deeper dive pre-acquisition. If that's something that you've not been able to do, then that is certainly something that you want to do immediately post-acquisition. And by that, I mean taking a closer look at any high-risk areas that have been identified as part of the due diligence exercise. That might involve a thorough audit of um, the acquired company and its practices. What are they doing and how are they doing it? And then, as you mentioned, um, you'll also need to to look at the compliance programme. Um, I mean, when a, a target company is bought, there's obviously a, a process that's gone through to integrate that target company into the parent company group. And part of that should be ensuring that the compliance processes and procedures are aligned and that if the target company's 
processes, processes and procedures are, are are not as gold standard as the parent companies, then bring them bringing them up so that the target company is uh, brought into the compliance culture of the parent. Um, that can involve redrafting compliance procedures. It can involve rolling out training programs for employees of the target. A whole host of things that you could think about doing um, in that regard. Post-acquisition, um, there are two, I think, uh, areas of potential interaction with the enforcement authorities. The first is a target company might have been subject to information requests from, for instance, the SFO. Uh, that could be either before um, uh, an investigation is launched in the case of a bribery investigation or during the course of an investigation. Uh, secondly, the second area is uh, that uh, if misconduct, historic misconduct, is discovered uh, soon after um, acquisition, then the board has to make a decision as to whether or not to self-report to the SFO. Um, that, of course, depends very much on the board's appetite for risk, uh, and that, of course, is based on uh, the likelihood or not, of the information coming to light and being made public. The important thing is for the board to stay ahead of the game. Uh, and it's worth bearing in mind uh, that the SFO would, I think, always be sympathetic to a new corporate regime uh, taking over, discovering historic problems and acting properly in relation to them. Well, that does give us plenty of food for thought then for the post-acquisition steps and, and thinking as well. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you would like any more information about anything that we've discussed today, please do feel free to reach out to us or to your usual Slaughter and May contact. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.